Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. As you find that, you can stand. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you then have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. God, I thank you again for your word and just the, the knowledge and revelation that you've given us of Christ and, and His finished work, which we have celebrated again with communion, but also which you've um, revealed for us in your word and I ask God that you would just speak to each of our hearts, minister to us, that we would be drawn to Jesus, and that he would be exalted, Lord, within our hearts and, and among us, God is a body. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to be back again. appreciate Connor and John and Craig preaching for me, filling in for me so much this summer. Um, I'll probably never be gone so much again. You might be saying, well, that wasn't so bad having you gone all that much, but anyway. Um, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting summer. I, as many of you know, I broke my ankle on May 1st, and, and so then I've been able to um, experience um, what it's like to be treated like royalty when you have your foot in a big boot, um, getting pushed in a wheelchair through airports all over the world, Spain and Japan and Canada most recently. Um, so it's been interesting. We went to Canada this last trip, and, um, and I thought, you know, um, I, I never check my bag when I'm going somewhere. I'll check it coming back. But they have lost my bag so many times. I'm convinced there is not only a no-fly list for certain terrorists, but there is a lose-the-bag list for certain people, and I'm on that list. And so I don't check my bag, but because I had my foot in a big boot, um, I thought I'm going to check my bag to Houston, I mean to Edmonton. Only one stop, San Antonio, Houston, and then nonstop from, San, from Houston to Edmonton. And they've got these apps now that you can get on your phone where you can track your bag. Do you know that? It does nothing but frustrate you. <laughs> and so we, we fly to Houston, and we should have had like an, an hour layover, plenty of time, um, but a storm had, had blown through, and so they had us just sitting on the tarmac, and no planes were allowed to move up to the gates because the other planes were still at the gates, and so the airport was shut down. So we sat on the tarmac for about 45 minutes, and then we've got 15 minutes to get to the next gate, and the wheelchair was not there waiting for me, and Patsy has her bag, and so I dragged her bag um, through the airport, hobbling as fast as I could, and we had a long, long walk, and we were both drenched in sweat, but we made the flight, but the bag didn't. Now, I've been telling you all this because I've been preaching in Colossians about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's a different thing to practice this and put it into application. And so we come get through customs, and we're standing there at the carousel to pick up the bag, and I said, Patsy, the bag's not here. My app tells me it's in Houston. So we went straight to customer service, and I said, would you just confirm what I already know, that my bag is in Houston? Two really sweet, nice ladies said, yes, your bag is in Houston. 
and I was not very sweet in response. So, yes, Jesus is preeminent, but he is not always in control of our responses by our own um, fault, not his. So, after three days of wearing the same clothes, they finally got my bag to me, and life is good. I have to tell you, we saw a few bears. We had friends that um, our daughter-in-law's family um, took us through Jasper National Park, and there were bears everywhere, and people were stopping and look at the bears. And so we stopped and looked at one big bear, and um, there were probably a dozen cars that are pulled off on the side of the road, and people were out and everything. And, and I'm standing there with my big boot on, and one guy said, I'm really glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm the bear bait. Y'all are all safe. <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I, when we first started Colossians, I told you that I liked Warren Wiersbe's um, outline here. And he said that chapter one is the preeminence of Christ declared. And chapter two is the preeminence of Christ defended. And then chapters 3 and 4 are the preeminence of Christ um, displayed, how it works out in our lives. Well, the last part of chapter 2, really almost all of chapter 2, you know, he's defending the preeminence of Christ by saying there's nothing that we need to add and should add to Jesus. It is Jesus alone. And so there are four different things that we typically, many times unconsciously, add to our add to Jesus and add to our walks with the Lord. The first one that Paul mentioned was philosophy, or we could just say intellectualism. And, and there again, and, and none of these things are bad in themselves. In fact, the scripture wants us to use our minds. But the scripture doesn't want us to, to think that Jesus is not enough, that I need to have some, some intellectual pursuit, that I need to have a, a, a clear system of theology, whatever it is that, that it becomes Jesus plus intellectualism, Jesus plus education. And that is an error. It's not just an error. That education and that intellectualism can become an enemy of Jesus Christ. The second problem is legalism, thinking that we have to keep the Mosaic law. But it's not just the Mosaic law that's the problem. It's the, think, it's the, th- the thinking the, another enemy that I have to perform, that it's Jesus plus my performance. And that is not true. That is adding legalism to Christ. And so he shoots that down. The third problem is mystical experience. If I could just have a vision, a dream, a mountaintop, Mount of Transfiguration experience. That's what I need. I'm, if, if something's missing, if I know it's Jesus is enough, but I need something else. And if I could just have an experience, then I could live the Christian life. And Paul's saying it's not Jesus plus an experience, a mystical experience. Again, Jesus wants us to use our brains. And when you place your faith in Christ... The Lord is expecting that there's going to be change to our lives, that we're not going to continue living the same way. There is a sense in which we perform differently. 
But we're not performing for Christ in order to, to get a richer experience of Christ. And, and the Lord doesn't, He gives experiences to His people, but we don't live for experience. We don't need experiences. What we need is Christ. And then the final thing is Christian disciplines. And many authors have written lots of books about discipline in the Christian life. And, and God does bring discipline to us. Paul's already celebrated the fact that the Corinthians have a um, stability and discipline of faith. And so, but it's not Jesus plus discipline. It's not Jesus plus anything. And so these people were, were abstaining from certain things. He says in chapter 2, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, so personal disciplines that are of no value against fleshly indulgence. When it comes down to it, to live the life that Jesus died and rose again for each of us to live. It's not about how much education I have. It's not about laws, performance that I keep. It's not, I don't need more mystical experience, and it's not about severe treatment of the body, personal disciplines. It's about Jesus. Christ was more than able to take away our sin. And he is more than able to, to, to handle sin, the devil, and the world today. He's already defeated these things. And when it comes to combating sin, the devil, and the world, it is not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. Whenever we make trips... You know, Patsy and I, um, like we've just made, we've been with, with Torchbearer Ministries, His Hill Associated Ministries in Europe and Canada and Japan. And one of the reasons we make these trips is because we're able to just be back in touch with people that we know and love and, and don't get to see very often. And, and it's always encouraging to catch up. But one of the things that you find out is, is how much... Um, trial people are going through, just the, the difficulties and things that you haven't heard about. I'm not on Facebook, and so I don't, I don't keep informed on a lot of things. And, um, and, and we were with good friends when we were in Canada, went out for breakfast with them, and I've known um, the, the husband for, for many years, and, and whenever we're, we're in Canada, um, we always hope that we can connect with this couple. And, well, he is really declining. He's 65 years old. Um, he's been a trucker his whole life, and he's had to, to give up his, his license. He can't drive any longer. Um, he has Parkinson's, and now dementia is setting in. 65 years old. It's a tough time. I can't tell you how blessed Patsy and I were to be with them and to see how, as the Lord is just stripping away everything, and really all they have left is Jesus. How, how encouraged they are in Christ and how much an encouragement it was to be with them. It's amazing. We have other friends that the husband is, um, we weren't able to see them, but he is basically an invalid and, and doesn't have much longer to live. And the wife has been through 
very, very difficult times as she's caring for her husband and watching his decline. And he's only 65, 66 years old. Um, but we heard that she has said that she has never been closer to Jesus in all of her life. And that's an encouragement to hear. So when we come to chapter 3, it's, you know, if, if Paul is saying, we don't need anything but Jesus, and that's what he's been saying, because Jesus is sovereign, and Jesus is sufficient. And if Christ is not sufficient for this life, then nothing is sufficient for this life. We cannot add to him, and we don't need anything more than what we got the day we received Christ, and that was Christ himself. So then what does it look like? How has it worked out in our lives? And that's chapter 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ, and we have been, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You know, I don't want to put, you know, tell Paul what he should have said. Um, I'll know I get corrected when we're in heaven. But he could have said, keep seeking Jesus. Because that's what he's saying. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Keep seeking Christ. That's all he's saying. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on this earth. Well, what kind of things? The things he's just worked through in chapter 2. Intellectualism, legalism, mystical experience, personal disciplines, They are earthly things. That is not where we should be living our life. Those things should not be the focus of our lives. Nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, but we make them additions to Jesus, make it seem that we need these things plus Jesus, then they become the enemies of Christ. They are earthly things. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died... When did that happen? The moment you placed your faith in Christ. But for most of us, though we recognize that, we eagerly confess it, we've just celebrated it this morning with communion, we died with Christ. It's a different thing to walk in that reality. And many times God has to bring a lot of things to bear to strip away stuff in our lives to where we realize we have nothing but Jesus. And we, and we enter into that death like we never have before. So in verse 3, we have died. In verse 1, we've been raised up. We've died. We've been raised up. And the consequence, verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's quite the word picture. Your life is hidden. So it's not about me being seen. My life is hidden with Christ in God. So wherever Christ goes, we go. We're hidden with Christ in God. Speaks of union, speaks of identification, and it speaks of security. Now, I can't say for sure, but I imagine that Paul had in mind the words of John. Now, maybe John wrote this, but Jesus, not to say that Paul didn't know the words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John, where Jesus wrote, where Jesus spoke and John wrote, and he said, My sheep 
hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. My sheep are in my hand, and nobody is going to get them out of my hand. And I am in my Father's hand, and nobody is going to remove you from my Father's hand. So that speaks of union, identification, and security. Because he is the sovereign, preeminent God, he is more than able to keep us. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says, verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So I'm going to skip the first part of the verse for now, which is very important things he has to say there. But look again, verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ. The end of verse 4, you will be revealed with him in glory. So right now, it's hard for us to maybe see that our life is so wedded with Jesus that it is hidden in Christ and in God. And this is something that is difficult to see, much less to see worked out in our lives right now. We all acknowledge that. But the day is coming when this, our life, which is now hidden, will be revealed with Christ in glory. Christ is going to be revealed one day in all of his glory. And our life, we will be revealed with him. Now, why does he say that? Because he's been dealing here, and this is, again, the practical implications of the sufficiency and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. If Jesus saved us, and I've said this before, if Jesus saved us totally by His doing, 1 Corinthians 1.30, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. All we did was just say, Jesus saved me. And He did it. It's 100% His work. Well, the same scriptures that speak of it being Christ's work to save us by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And I don't think we even need to go down the rabbit trail there of election and all that and predestination and all that. That is not in Paul's mind. He's just telling us Jesus saves. And we cannot save ourselves. Only Jesus can save us. And now he's telling us here in Colossians, our life is hidden with him and it will be revealed in glory. There's no question about this. And so a day of glory is coming, and we are going to be revealed as being with Him, and we will have nothing to do with that. We will see Him, and we will be like Him. Praise God. And so every one of us has the confidence and the hope of glory. Romans 5, right at the beginning of that chapter there, it says, We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Sooner or later, we are all going to get what we do not deserve, the glory of God. We will be revealed in glory with Him. So when God, is the Father, is glorifying His Son in eternity, and we're standing there and seeing that, and it's going to be all about Jesus, 
And Jesus is going to be front and center on the stage. And then he starts calling us up to be with him. And we're going to be revealed with him in glory. And we're going to go, you got to be kidding. I've got no business being here. And I get called up on the stage to be with Jesus. I get to be revealed with Jesus in glory. That's amazing. And we're going to know we're unworthy of it. We've got no business being in the room. It is totally the grace of God as we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is so hard for us to get through our heads. But the same Jesus who was powerful enough to save us and who is more than sufficient for revealing us in glory is powerful enough and sufficient enough for living this life today. No question about it. Christ is our life. That's an amazing statement. Christ is our life. How does he become your life? By devotion and consecration. You need to make Jesus your life. Is that what it says? See, this is, this is where we usually go when we're preaching to each other. Jesus wants to be your life. You need to make him your life. Well, you can't get that from the book of Colossians. I don't know that you can get that anywhere in the Bible. Jesus is life. You don't make him your life. He is your life. He became your life when you placed your faith in Christ. But Jesus has always been life. We don't make him life. He's always been life. And so there's nothing in here about consecrating yourself, devoting yourself to make Jesus your life. He is your life. Now, we may not recognize it, but that doesn't change the fact. He is your life. My life is not intellectualism. My life is not Christian experience. My life is not performance. My life is not Christian discipline. My life, and we can fill in the blank, it's not health. It's not friends. It's not job. It's not reputation. And so when you're with people that see all of those things stripped away, and they're going, my relationship with Jesus has never been better. We're talking about this with Job in the, in the adult Sunday school class, right? And we're going, everything's been stripped away. But I've been reduced to the irreducible. Christ. And he is life. And he's always been life. I'm just now cluing in to what's always been. See, I think life is not losing my suitcase. Seriously. And I'm acting like an idiot. You know, and I let it slip. My suit is in the suitcase because I'm here to do a wedding. And I'm thinking, oh, now she knows I'm a preacher. And I'm just going, <laughs> shouldn't have said that. You know, and I'm, and I'm just, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, Jesus is not on, on display. And then I go and see these dear friends where Jesus is so on display and they're going through so much more than losing a piece of luggage. You can't reduce life to anything more essential than Jesus Christ. He is pure gold. We don't, it's not a matter 
Christ is our life. It's not a matter of devotion or consecration. We don't make him our life. He is. We don't pray for him to become our life. He is. He has always been life. He became our life personally to us when we received him. But he's always been life. To have him is to have the life. First John says that Christ is eternal life. And the one who has Christ has the life. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have the life. To live from him is to experience that life. But that doesn't give me the life. It's always there. But I experience Jesus as my life when I say, Jesus, I'm not going to live from anything but you. And I thank you when you strip away the stuff that I am so tempted to take confidence in to let those other things become the substitute for life. Man, I I read Luke 18. It's one of the three places it's found about the rich young ruler. And, you know, the guy comes to Jesus and says, how can I have eternal life? He knew he didn't have life. How can I have eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And Jesus knew keeping the commandments isn't going to give you life. But he wanted to make this man see there is no place else to go. There is no place to get life, and there's nothing you can do in order to acquire life. So keep the commandments. And, the, and so Jesus says, don't commit murder, don't steal, don't commit um, adultery, all these things. And the guy said, man, I've done all that since my youth, but I don't have life. So he's close. He's, he realizes my performance isn't enough. And Jesus says, okay. Go sell everything you have. So you're stripping him, reducing it all down. Sell everything you have and come follow me. And the man walked away grieved because he possessed many things. One commentator says that Jesus, by by making that statement, was exposing to this man who thought he had kept all the law from the time of his youth that he had violated the very first of the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Because his God was his possessions. And when Jesus said, give it all away, now it's exposed. Where's his life? Is his life in, is he really wanting the life of God? Or is he finding life in something other than God? The man was an idolater. And he didn't even know it until Jesus said that. It is the mercy of God. When God works in our lives that we have to come back to Jesus alone. To have him is to have life. He is the irreducible essence. When you have nothing but Jesus, and Jesus is truly, truly our lives, there's nothing anybody can do to you. Right? Because they can't take away that. They can kill you physically, but they can't take away Jesus, who is your life. You think about the freedom that that gives us. There's no worry. There's no anxiety. There's nothing to fret about. See, how do do I know that my mind is set on the things above? What's What's the stress level that you're going through? What's the anxiety level, the frustration, the worry? All of those things say my mind is not set on the things above. All of those things say, I'm trying to find life in somewhere other than Jesus. Christ is our life.
We substitute all these other things for Christ. Family, career, health, money, reputation. And when God peels them off, we panic and we fret. We think, what are we going to do? And God's bringing us back to this irreducible essence that life is Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's good stuff. So if all this is true, and it is, Christ is our life, we have, been, we have died, we have been raised, and we will be revealed with Him in glory, then the application, verse 5, the first of several application statements that he's going to make here, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, and he may mean sexual greed, which amounts to idolatry. Consider or reckon the members of your earthly body as dead because you died, you've been risen, Christ is your life, and now you can reckon your, your body, your humanity as dead to everything that is contrary to God. This is the same idea that Paul uses in Romans 6, verse 11. I'm sorry, yeah, Romans 6, verse 11, where he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In the next verse, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So what goes hand in hand with reckoning yourself, considering yourselves to be dead to sin, is presenting yourselves to God. Reckon yourselves dead and present the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. They go hand in hand. There's no good just to reckon yourself dead if you don't also present yourself to Him. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And then He lists all this sexual stuff. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and many commentaries think even the greed is sexual greed, which amounts to idolatry. So Paul's just stuck up, hung up, on sexual sin. That's what the world says. What's with you Christians? You're always hung up on sex. Well, we're not hung up on it. But God is addressing. Look at the next thing that he's going to say. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. And now look at the next list. But now you also put them all aside. And these are not sexual sins. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. All of those are are sins related to aggression. So the first list is sins related to sexuality. And the second list is sins related to aggressiveness. Now, there is no sin in being a sexual being. There is no sin in being aggressive. But sexuality can be perverted and we, can be, and we can sin sexually. And, we can, and aggressiveness can be perverted into violence and, and murder and hurtful, hateful ways against other people. 
I'll never forget, and I've told this story in the past, I was in Bible college, and, and I didn't play basketball for obvious reasons. And, um, and, but the guys would play basketball out there right behind the, the dorms. And, and the basketball court was right outside the window of the dean of men. And we didn't have air conditioning in those dorms, and so the windows were always up. And, and you could hear everything going on in the basketball court. And those guys are out there. I mean, they, they were mad and, and, and yelling at each other and taking swings at each other and cursing. It's Bible college. And I can remember going to the dean. I'm going, dean, I know you can hear this. It's right outside your window. Why don't you do something? And being the patient, wise man that he was, he said, Charlie, the two strongest drives in a man's life are his sexual drive and his aggressiveness. And he has got to learn how to get a handle on those things. And see, there's, there's no sin in having a sexual drive. There is no sin in being aggressive. Men are supposed to have a sexual drive, and they're supposed to be aggressive. See, we're living in a time now where that's just toxic masculinity. There is nothing toxic in itself of having sexual drive and of having an aggressive personality. It's, what, it's how that's manifest. It can be abusive. It can be destructive. We understand that. But it is not in and of itself sinful. God created men in particular to have a sexual drive and to be aggressive. This was God's intent. It was his design. What Paul's talking about is Jesus not being preeminent over this. He is the preeminent God. And when he's not preeminent over the most basic fundamental drives of our life, this is what it looks like. And he says, that's not right. Christ is our life. And when Christ is functioning as your life, then that sexual de desire is not going to be perverted into immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And because he is preeminent and powerful, you can consider yourself dead to those things. Because you have died, you have been risen, and Christ is your life, and that's where the victory is. And once again... As frustrating as it may be for all of us, there is no 12-step program for how to conquer sexual addiction here. It's come to Jesus, is what he's saying. Consider yourself dead to sexual immorality. That's the program. Jesus. Are you getting it? I mean, there, I, there's no place in the Bible that even gives a three-step program. There's a one-step program in the Bible. Come to Jesus. If he's not sufficient... For handling your sin, there is nothing that you can do. He is the Savior from sin, and He is the only way you're ever going to find deliverance is to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you've got to do this, or I'm stuck in death. And Jesus says, thank you very much. I'm the only one that can lift you up out of that miry pit, as the psalmist talks about. And the same thing is true when it comes to our anger, which we often want to describe as righteous anger, and is often far from it. Put them aside. Put them aside. Anger, speaking of our anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Well, I can't. I, you don't know how I was raised. I was raised with people that were always this way. It's part of my makeup. It's part of my culture. And God says, baloney. It's not true to Jesus. And there are no excuses. I had to call up Ian Thomas one time the ultimate boss of torchbearers many years ago because we had a, 
um, a guest speaker who was, who was his, his language was just not right. It was just not right. It was inappropriate. But he, he had been ministering in another country for many years, and, and I had to confront him. It shouldn't have been me. But I was the only one left. I had to sit down. This guy is older than me. He's a, he's a big shot in torchbearers, and I'm having to sit down with, me, with him just, I'm a nothing, low, you know, 20 years old or something, and I'm having to tell this guy, your language is inappropriate. And he goes, well, what do you mean? And I go, do I really have to explain it? I didn't say that, was so I'm thinking, and I had to just repeat back to him a number of the things that he'd been saying. He goes, well, I don't see the problem. I don't know what you're, I mean, so this must be an American, European thing. And I, it's a cultural thing. And I'm going, oh, goodness. So I'm going to have to go above his head. And so I called up Major Thomas. And um, I said, Major, this is what's going on. I don't know what more to do. He tells me it's a cultural thing. Cultural thing? Major just, blah! I mean, I'm I'm having to hold the phone away from my, you know, I mean, this has got nothing to do with culture. This has got everything to do with this not being consistent with Christ. Christ transcends culture. Don't blame this on culture. Don't blame it on your family. Don't blame it on the way you were raised. It's sin. And the only one who can deal with sin is Jesus. Don't call it cultural. It's sin. And there's no step, 12-step, 3-step, 5-step program to get dealing with sin. We come to Jesus. Put it aside. That's what he says. Consider the members of your body as dead to these things. Put these things aside. Don't justify them. Don't rationalize them. It is on account of these things the wrath of God will come. He's not saying we are going to experience the wrath of God. But he's saying don't justify this stuff. God's wrath is going to be poured out on this earth one more time at least when that's going to be the ultimate pouring out of his wrath, when the whole earth is going to be destroyed by fire, just like it was destroyed by water. And it's going to be on account of these things, just as in the days of Noah, when the earth was destroyed, on account of these things, the wrath of God comes upon this world. As Christians, we will not experience the wrath of God. Jesus is very clear on that. But neither should we be doing the things that incur the wrath of God because we are covered by the blood of Christ. There's no excuse. If it's not true to Jesus, it needs to stop. And, there, and it can stop. Not because of our strength, but because our life is hidden with Christ in God, and God is able to do this. Our life is hidden with Him, and Christ is our life. And so we come to Him, and maybe we come to Him a million times every day, but we go, Jesus, you're the only one. And I don't like having to say this over and over and over again, but my struggle The temptation just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And so we live in that place of constant dependence, constant repentance, constantly coming to him and saying, Jesus, you're the only one. And we can live by the grace of God in freedom. We can live in the power of Christ because it is never, the Christian life is never about my willpower or what I need to do It is about Christ and Christ alone and what he is able to do. And I will close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you again for your word. Simple truths, God. Every one of us, Lord, just sometimes we wish that you'd given us two or three, four steps to have done. Even if you had told us to walk on beds of glass, Lord, we would have done it. 
But all you've said to do is come to Jesus. He is our life, and our life is hidden with him. And if Christ is not sufficient, then nothing ever will be. There's nothing that we can do, need to do, nothing you've called us to do, but to consider the members of our body as dead and to put these things aside, not by our effort or power, but because of Christ, we've died and risen with him. And as Paul says in Ephesians, we are seated with him in heavenly places. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for your preeminence and for your power. And I pray, God, that as we turn to you and say, Jesus, we're not adequate, but you are, that we would experience this, God, in the small things as well as the big things of life, that in all things we'd be living in Christ and from Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.